Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Fantline Wisdom. I'm Minister Marvin Fant, giving wisdom and a godly perspective to combat the problems of today's world. For there is nothing new under the sun, and what God said for yesterday is good for then, today, and tomorrow. Now here's today's wisdom. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me, and praise the Lord. Now, today's message is called The Greatest Sermon Ever. And it's the greatest sermon ever, and by no means, not because I'm doing it or put it together. It's because it was done by Jesus. That's right, Jesus. Jesus did the greatest sermon ever. And entailing that, he covered all bases of life. Now, he spoke it to the people back in the day, back during his time. But it was meant for everyone going forward. People during that day and forward. This day, right now, the present and forward. <clears throat> and the Sermon on the Mount, as you would more familiar be, from, be more familiar with, it covers chapters five through seven. And it goes over 20 subjects or aspects of life. Did you know that? So he hit on all phases, all aspects with that Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever. To categorize it, he spoke about the Beatitudes, which, which are the blessings, salt and light, fulfillment of the law, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, be it swearing by, retaliation, Love your enemies, giving to the need, Lord's Prayer, in other words, how to pray, fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, tells us don't be anxious, talks about judging others, asking it will be uh, given to you, the golden rule, a tree and its fruit. And then he goes on to say, I never knew you. And build your house on a rock. Those are the 20 categories. Now, what I'm going to do is go into each one of these and break it down for you. <clears throat> now, the first one is the uh, Beatitudes. In chapter 5 from verses 1 through 12. Now, Jesus pronounced these blessings on people with a kingdom mindset. Those who consciously and unapologetically align their lives under the rule of God. The blessing offer those who reject religious externalism. 
Jesus is primarily concerned with what's happening on your inside, which should be the basis of what you're showing on the outside. So, and to go over to go over them real quickly, is it talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is, is theirs. Those are the blessings that when you adhere to those, those are blessings that you will be promised. Those are blessings that you will receive. Salt and light. Now, after describing the character of kingdom people, Jesus described the impact and influence of kingdom people. He told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. Before the advent of refrigeration, people used to salt so you use salt to preserve food. Now, salting down a piece of meat slowed the decaying process. And notice that Jesus didn't tell them you are the salt of the shaker. Since it's under the curse of sin, the earth is like a decaying piece of meat and salt can't be and salt can't preserve meat if it stays in the shaker. For salt to lose its taste is to lose its uniqueness. And we are a unique people. We are a unique people. Christians are to be salt in a decaying world, but if you become too mixed up with the world and allow its values to affect you, you will lose your uniqueness as a Christian and your ability to make a kingdom difference. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, not only because of wicked people, but also because they weren't enough righteous people there to prevent God's judgment. So we are to stand out. We are to be that shining light no matter where we're at. We can't be afraid. We can't be ashamed. We have to, and we should, and we must speak the righteousness and be about the righteousness of God. Next one, fulfillment of the law. This is from uh, chapter five, verses 17 through 20. Jesus did not come in opposition to the law or the prophets, which is a way of referring to the Old Testament. He came to fulfill them. The Old Testament was intended to point to Christ who would bring it to it. It's God intended consummation. He, in fact, is the theme of the Old Testament scriptures. In order to provide us with righteousness, making us acceptable before God, he had to live a life of complete obedience to God's law. Not only is each letter of the Bible, Bible vital, but so is each part, be it stroke of each letter. God's word is entirely authoritative. And Jesus submitted it 
perfectly, allowing him to impart perfect righteousness to those who place personal faith in him. Christ calls them to follow him in obedience to the law. Not for salvation, but for sanctification. So they may see the kingdom of rule in God of God in their lives. Unless as a disciple of Jesus, you are committed to growing in righteousness, the heavenly kingdom will not be expressed <clears throat> in your earthly history. As we will see, the scribes and the Pharisees were concerned only with external righteousness. In other words, they they talked about <clears throat> they 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 in other words, the, the scribes and Pharisees were all about show. They were not about the fulfillment of the law. Christ came to fulfill the law. He came to make it complete. Whereas the scribes, Pharisees of the day, the preachers of the day, they shortchanged it. It was not complete with them. Next one, number four, anger. Anger. It says, do not murder was one of the Ten Commandments that all Jews knew. Right? We all know, we all know to to not to not to murder. Or murder is a is a sin, big sin, okay? But with God, all sins. All sins are equal. All sins is a sin. But we tend to take one over the other. But Jesus said, if you are angry with your brother or sister or use vicious words to or use vicious words toward them, you're guilty of breaking the law. You're guilty of breaking the law. That takes God's standards to a whole new level. It tells us God not only considers our actions, but also our thoughts and words. And it provides us a deeper understanding of the law. Jesus demonstrated that God is concerned with the motives of the heart. Because you think about it, the sins that we commit, the sins that we do, it has to start from within inside. Now, <clears throat> People may say, well, as long as I, I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's to one degree. But we have to think about what God sees. And what God sees is you having that in your heart, that murder in your heart, that hate in your heart. And at some point, it will come to fruition. <clears throat> So if you come to worship and, re and remember that you are at odds with your brother, go and be reconciled with him. Jesus emphasized the connection between the vertical and the horizontal in order to have a healthy vertical relationship. Intimacy and fellowship with God, you must maintain your horizontal relationship with others. Make peace with your adversary in as much as it depends on you. Be reconciled before he takes legal action or the consequences of your dispute becomes worse. In other words, nip it in the bud before it, it, it blows into a mushroom. Nip it in the bud right then and there. 
Don't let it escalate. Cut it off at the head. Cut it off at the pass. Do not let it escalate. <clears throat> okay. Next one. Lust. Lust. Now, this covers um, verses 27 through 30 in chapter 5. Sexual purity involves more than avoiding a physical act. It too involves the heart. Do not commit adultery was another of the Ten Commandments that many Jews probably assumed they could check on, out on a list of sins be it successfully dodged. But Jesus said that looking at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery with her in your heart. Immoral actions then begin with immoral thoughts. See, it first has to be set in place and then ferment and then grow and grow and grow until the action is taken. Immoral actions then begin with immoral thoughts, and the immoral thoughts are evil also. You can't address sin by only dealing with external actions. Again, it has to be from within. In today's world, pornography is a huge stumbling block to moral purity and a clear example of the kind of sin that Jesus warned against. Jesus wants his disciples to be so radical for moral purity that they're willing to cut off anything that draws them to sin. And he's not calling for physical mutilation. Again, sin is a matter of the heart and not merely the eyes and hands. Instead, he's calling for a radical approach to avoiding sin. Number six, divorce. The Jewish religious leaders had varying understandings of divorce. Some thought you could divorce for any reason, but Jesus limited divorce. And doesn't that hold true today? Whereas people, you know, you divorce for any reason. Um, I want to divorce because your feet smell bad. I want to divorce because uh, um, you start losing your hair. I want to divorce because... You don't know how to wipe your nose. I mean, it, it could be, or it can range from the serious, the sublime, to the stupid. But Jesus limited divorce. He said, a man who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery because such an action would drive her to marry another. Moreover, the one who marries such a woman commits adultery. Why? Because hers was an illegitimate divorce unsanctioned by God. Marriage vows are to be viewed as sacred and permanent. Notice that it is the person seeking the illegitimate, illegitimate divorce who is blamed for the sin, not the woman who remarries. Number seven, oaths. Jesus didn't deny the the legitimacy of all oath-taking. We find oaths in the Old Testament as when covenant relationships were established. Jesus then was warned against 
was warning against careless, profane, and flippant uses of oaths in everyday speech. An oath shouldn't be used to convince someone of the truthfulness of what you're saying. That might only be a cover-up for deception. Remember, anything in creation that you swear by is under God's authority. So speak with truthfulness. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Number eight, retaliation. And don't we all have a... <laughs> isn't, that all, isn't that a big one for all of us? And this covers um, chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Kingdom people think and live differently than those in the entire in, in those in, in the culture around them. The Old Testament principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was intended to keep just justice fair and limited. Punishment was to be in proportion to the crime, but Jesus wanted his followers to develop a servant mindset. He thus presented several scenarios with the same emphasis. Your spirit of servanthood must go beyond what is required and extend even to those who mistreat you. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, this example refers to the practice of Roman soldiers forcing civilians to carry their packs up to a mile. Now, according to Jesus, Servanthood should be such a dominant orientation in kingdom people that we are willing to go the extra mile, even for people who don't like us. And I know, I know that's a hard one right there. I know that's a hard one for all of us, really, to go that extra mile for the person who did you wrong, to go that extra mile for the person who cursed you out, to go that extra mile for that person who is just mean and nasty to you. Now, this doesn't involve placing yourself into an abusive situation. Okay, let's get that straight. This does not involve putting yourself in an abusive situation. There's a difference. However, nor does it mean that there are no limitations. Instead, as Paul says, it means not repaying evil for evil, but conquering evil with good. Number nine, love your enemies. <laughs> it falls right in line with what we just said, right in line with what we just talked about. God's law commanded, love your neighbor. The natural conclusion for many Jews, though, was that you could hate your enemy. Jesus turned that thinking on its head. Instead, he said, you must love your enemies. To do so is a simple reflection of the character your father in heaven. It's a reminder that God doesn't show kindness only to believers. He extends common grace to all, meaning that there are certain blessings that he gives to all people. For instance, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. <clears throat> You don't have to be a Christian to feel the sun, feel the sunshine, and to breathe, breathe oxygen. And Jesus, Jesus expects the behavior of his disciples to stand out in a sinful world. Even wicked people will look out for those who look out for them. 
right? So if you love only those in your circle who like you, what are you doing out of the ordinary? <clears throat> and to be perfect, as God is perfect, does not mean to be sinless. Rather, it means to love others in the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and, in, and in order to love others in that mode, it has to come from help of the Holy Spirit. And by seeking their best interest as a reflection of God's character, to do this even for people you don't like, loving your neighbor doesn't require having warm and fuzzy feelings for him. It means seeking his well-being. So you don't have to get all cute and cuddly and warm with that person. And also remember, it doesn't all it doesn't mean the neighbor next door. It means your neighbor, whoever you come in contact with, that is your neighbor. That is your neighbor. Number 10, giving to the needy. Now, this is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus wanted his followers to be kingdom people, but he didn't want them to do kingdom activities in order to be praised by others. Be careful not to practice your righteousness to be seen. And he gives three examples of practicing righteousness, giving to the poor, praying and fasting. These are all good, legitimate practices, but we mustn't do them for public recognition, as many people do. They want to be they want to be seen because they did something good. They want to be heard about because they did, did something good. To do so is to be a hypocrite. That is to play a character, an actor giving an external appearance of spirituality without an accompanying internal reality. In the old Western movies, they would create a town that appeared to be full of buildings, but each structure was a facade. A building might look like a saloon in the front, but there was nothing on the other side of the door, such as a movie set gave a false impression. So we as Christians can give false impressions because it's not coming from the heart. When you give money to those in need, whether directly or, or through your church or another ministry, don't sound the trumpet and don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. In other words, don't brag about what you're giving to others and, and showing how generous that you are. Those who announce their giving, they have their reward. <laughs> you have your reward. In other words, Instead of letting God reward you, which is the best way, you get that self-gratification by announcing what you just did. And God is like, okay, since you want to do it that way, I'll let you go. You go ahead and have that reward right there. But that reward that you just received pales in, com in comparison to what I was about to do for you. So you go ahead, you go ahead and do what you want to do. I give you a free mind, a free spirit. Go ahead. But I was going to reward you significantly in comparison to that small, minute adulation you just received. <clears throat> Number 11, Lord's Prayer. He tells us how to pray. He tells us how to pray. Now, 
And this is from chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Or rather, excuse me, 5 through, I should say, 15. But that one is more detailed, a little longer, so I'm going to bypass most of that. Basically, what it's saying is, and you can look for yourself in there, he breaks it down as to it's it's not to be a repetitive prayer as many, many people do, okay? That prayer is to be broken down and basically come from the heart. It comes from the heart. It's, it's not to be repeated over and over and over because many people, when they repeat it over and over, it, it's, a, it's hollow. It's shallow. Okay, that prayer was a model. It's the model prayer is what it's called. It's the model prayer. But people use it over and over with no thought behind it. Again, I've used the heart all the time. I use the heart a lot in this. It doesn't come from the heart. Jesus tells us when we pray is to come from the heart. And that is the model prayer, a structure of how we should pray. Check it out yourselves. Number 12, fasting. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 18. <clears throat> As with giving and praying, Jesus, Jesus extorted, exhorted his followers not to fast for public recognition. The fact that he says, whenever you fast, Tell, uh, tells us he considers fasting a legitimate spiritual discipline. To fast is to temporarily give up a bodily craving, typically food, because of a spiritual need. Instead of eating, then you devote yourself to prayer in secret, seeking God's kingdom intervention. But if your goal is avoiding food, in avoiding food is for other people to celebrate how spiritual you look, then your approval will be your reward. Again, we just I just spoke about that. Number 13, laying up treasures in heaven. <clears throat> in these verses, Jesus emphasizes the spiritual over the physical. Everyone collects treasures on earth, but they don't last. Heavenly treasures are far better investments. They're eternal and imperishable. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store your treasure where you want your heart to be. Your heart will follow your treasure. In order to focus on heaven and store treasure there, you have to see clearly. The eye is the lamp of the body. Either you let light in through your eyes or you remain in darkness. It's that simple. And unless your spiritual perspective is directed by God, you'll wander in the dark. Just like, just like the, um, God's people wandered in the desert for 40 years. They were in the dark. Few things can distract our spiritual focus and fill us with darkness as effective, effectively as becoming a slave to money. Note that having money is not the problem. That's not the problem. And many people get that twisted. Okay? It's not the problem. Note that having money 
It's not the problem, though. The danger is when money has you, when money directs you, when money guides you, when money leads you, then that's the problem. Okay. So, like I said, the danger with money is not having it, but when it has you, when it leads, directs, and guides you. That's when the physical becomes more important to you than the spiritual. You can't serve two masters. God must have your devotion if you are to receive his kingdom direction. Number 14, don't be anxious. In other words, don't worry. And that is a situation that uh, in some way, somehow, some shape, some form affects everybody. 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 Now, others, they can they can push off some of these other others I just mentioned, but that worry, that anxiousness, we we have to really keep that in check on a daily basis because so much comes at us on a daily basis. It says for many of us, the admonition not to worry about your life sounds just as impossible as to obey as don't breathe. Worry and anxiety and anxiety over life are commonplace. But to this, Jesus said, in effect, when was the last time you saw a bird with an ulcer? When was the last time you saw a bird with an ulcer? With an ulcer? Birds don't worry about where they're going to get their next meal. And yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Flowers don't agonize over looking pretty. But not even, but not even Solomon in all his splendor could match the beauty in the fields of God of God's creation. If God gives this kind of attention to birds and flowers, won't he do much more for you? So don't worry about life's needs. After all, idolaters seek after things and become anxious. They plead with their false gods for help. But you have a heavenly father, the true and living God, who knows what you need. And it's not wrong to plan and work hard. We should do these things. Our error is when we remove God, when we remove God from the equation or fail to give him priority. And we do this all the time. And we do this in all phases and aspects of life. We worry about the small, we worry about the big. But God said, give it all to him. God said, put his worries, put your worries on his back, his shoulders. He's strong enough when we are weak. What then is the antidote for worry? 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, this statement is the centerpiece of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you get this right, everything else falls into place. God demands that his kingdom rule be first in your life. When it's missing, you have identified the key to your problems. Righteousness is the standard God requires in order for his people to seek to rightly relate to him. To seek his kingdom is to seek to live in accordance with his standards and his guidelines. But of course, prioritizing God's kingdom in this way doesn't mean you won't experience challenges. Oh, you will. You definitely will. Challenges and suffering. But your life will be aligned under his kingdom authority so you can experience his provision. You know, in baseball, you can step on second base, third base, and home plate without being tagged. But if you miss first base on the way, nothing else matters. You're out. God can't be second. So how do you know if you're putting God's kingdom first? Ask yourself this question. When I need guidance to make decisions, where do I go first? Where do I go first? For many Christians, God is like a spare tire. He's where they run when all else fails. So do you seek God's perspective first through his word and godly counsel? Or do you seek the world's perspective? Kingdom Christians appeal to God's view and his righteousness and his righteous standards first. Do this and all these things will be, be provided for you. Align yourself with his agenda and your daddy will make will take responsibility for meeting your needs. So take care of today's concerns and don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Today the tomorrow today is the tomorrow you were worried about yesterday focusing on living for God's kingdom today is the antidote for worry. Number 15, judging others. All right, here's another one, judging others. <clears throat> Do not judge. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, that's one thing that people seem to do very well to illegitimately judge. It's is to create your own standard of what is acceptable and measure everyone against it, hypocritically critiquing them. Not surprisingly, people who do this typically find no problems with their own behavior. You, know, you hear everybody else criticizing others, but when are they ever wrong? You hear somebody talk about other drivers. Okay, how well do they drive? See, typically people have no problems with their own behavior. That's because when a sinner creates a standard, he becomes the standard. When there was a kid who was 11 years old and wanted to show his father he could dunk a basketball in the gym, the problem was that he had asked the janitor to lower the rim so that he could dunk it. 
Those who hypocritically judge others use a standard, but it is God's standard that has been lowered. Judgmental people lose sight of the fact that they too will be judged. And the same measuring stick they use will be used against them. Pass judgment on others and your standard will be used to, ju to um, be used to judge you. It's a boomerang effect. <clears throat> Number 16. Ask and it will be given. Ask and it will be given. Prayer is an earthly request for heavenly intervention. It doesn't make God do what's outside of his will, but releases him to do what is inside his will. God has determined that he will not do certain things until asked. So we are to ask, seek, and knock for what we need. When you pursue and request those things that are in his will, and that's key, things that are in his will, not outside of his will. And what is in his will? Well, that which is not sin. Or it could be a situation of you may want something and it's not sinful, but the timing isn't right. The timing isn't right for you. So in that regard, be patient for God's timing when it's right for you. <clears throat> when you pursue and request those things that are in his will, he promises to deliver. The question is this, how long should you ask, seek, and knock until you get an answer? These are three answers to prayer, yes, no, or wait. If you haven't heard yes or no, then you keep asking. <clears throat> you know, children will ask their parents repeatedly for things until they receive a reply. And God doesn't give harmful things in response to prayer any more than a loving father would give harmful things to his kids when they ask. Even if even sinful dads know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your perfect father in heaven give what is beneficial to you when you ask? Number 17, we're almost done here. The golden rule. <clears throat> what is the golden rule? Now, in the context of this discussion of judging others in prayer, Jesus utters this boomerang principle. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. That is the golden rule. We call this the golden rule in short. It means to love others, to practice the one others of scripture do for the people around you what you want God to do for you and watch how he delivers. <clears throat> do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Quite simple, direct, plain, simple. Really, you can't mistake that. Be Treat others the way you want others to treat you. Come on. Number 18, a tree and its fruit. Often people will, 
follow the wide gate and a broad road because they've been given faulty directions. That's why people need to be on guard against false prophets. They claim to speak for God, but they're liars. They come camouflaged, looking like sheep when they're actually wolves. How will you know? How will you know them when you see them? You'll recognize them by their fruit. In saying this, Jesus used an agricultural illustration to make per that makes perfect sense. If a tree is healthy, it will produce good fruit. If the fruit is bad, it's because the tree itself is bad. The lesson here is that when that you need to examine the evidence of a teacher's life and ministry, is that person teaching and is that person's teaching and doc, doctrine consistent with God's word? Does his lifestyle display holiness and love for the Lord? If either answer is no, don't be deceived. Watch out for the counterfeit. Watch out for the counterfeit. <clears throat> In other words, read up on God's word also. Get to know the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Number 19. The Lord says, I never knew you. False teachers, and he's talking about false teachers. False teachers will experience God's judgment because their actions will demonstrate they never had a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Someone can call Jesus Lord, Lord, and have a ministry that appears to be authentic. Nevertheless, a lack of good fruit will expose them all the time. It will expose them. The King of Kings will thus respond, depart from me, you lawbreaker. That's plain and direct right there. And the last one, build your house on the rock. Build your house on the rock. You know, there's a man who, he said um, he had a crack on the wall of his house. And no matter how many times he had fixed that crack, that crack came back. And finally, he learned that the problem wasn't the wall. The problem was a shifting foundation. And many of us have cracks in our lives. Well, all of us, really. Emotional, relational, financial. But we address the symptoms and not the source of the problems, many of us. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount with a story about two men who had three things in common. Each man built a house. Both heard the words of Jesus and both encountered a violent storm. That's where the similarities end and the contrast begins. One of these men was wise and the other foolish. Wisdom is the ability and willingness to apply spiritual truth to life's circumstances. In contrast, foolishness is the inability and unwillingness to apply spiritual truth to life's realities. The wise man heard Jesus' words and acted on them. That is, he built on a foundation of rock. To do so is harder and more time consuming. The fool built on sand, this is easier 
cheaper and faster to do. But the choice of approaches raises a question. How long do you want your house to stand? You cannot build a skyscraper. <clears throat> you cannot have a skyscraper life on a chicken coop's foundation. If you want stability in your personal life, your family, your ministry, and your community, you need the strong, sturdy foundation of God's word, which includes both knowledge of the Bible and applying it to life. <clears throat> the storm revealed which man was wise and which one was foolish. The trials of life will expose your foundation and what it's made out of. So there you have it. <clears throat> to sum all this up, what we just talked about, what are you building your foundation on? What are you building your foundation on? Is it God's word? Or is it, or is it the, um, the lies and falses of man? What are you building your foundation on? Are you being led by Satan or are you being led by God? Do you, are you looking to build a foundation quickly or are you taking the time to put things together to, to make a concerted effort to have that strong foundation instead of a quick fix? It's up to you or how you want to build that foundation. Your life, your present, your future, it's up to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And I said. Thank you for listening to Fatline Wisdom. And please tell others about it. For wisdom is key growth and prosperity in Jesus name no said